The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. What is one of your partner's deepest held dreams? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. Okay, so I am so excited that I get to share this special conversation I got to have with Drs. John and Julie Gottman with you today. They are two of the top relationship and marriage therapists and researchers. And here's the reason I wanted to have this conversation. My work is all about giving us the information and tools we need to live meaningfully both inside and outside of work. What I know from my experience and my work with clients is that when one area of our lives is on an upward spiral, it's almost contagious to all the other areas. And the reverse is true, too. The Gottmans have made a career and a legacy out of giving us all accessible tools to become what they call partnership masters. From learning how to predict marriage success with 90% accuracy to running an experimental love lab that observes couples, these two have left no stone unturned when it comes to one of the most impactful relationships of our lives, our significant others. Here's Dr. Julie Gottman telling me why they're doing this work. to bring a little more love into the world. So in terms of relationship to self, I was very seriously working on that with people who had uh, severe trauma, people who've been tortured, physically abused, sexually abused, people who may have devolved into psychosis. And then John and I met and I carried some of that individual focus into the couple's work that we do in couple's research. What we're really trying to do is to increase compassion in the space between partners, really yields more compassion. And with that compassion, of course, there's the foundation of love so that as people understand each other better, each person's idiosyncrasies, each person's baggage that they bring into the relationship, past dynamics they may have used in the relationship, and giving those tools as well as deeper understanding to couples who have learned the wrong things and helping them learn what successful couples do and connect at the deepest level I love that. And you all have studied thousands of couples now. And what is it, nine out of 10 times you can predict divorce? Right. Yeah, with uh, over 90% accuracy, just by watching the way couples talk to each other. And that was what the science involved that Robert Levinson and I started this almost 50 years ago uh, in our laboratory, trying to see are there masters of relationships? Are, are there disasters? The answer is yes. And then Julie and I really worked on, can you turn people into a master? Can you teach relationships 101 kind of course? And the answer is yes, you can. 
And that's what we've been doing for the last 26 years. Everyone, I'm sure, is wondering, like, how can you tell by the way someone talks to their partner whether or not they're going to make it? I'm like, is it the eye roll? What are the tells for you that people can use on their own? Well, it boils down to respect and affection. It's about in the moment, really showing interest in your partner, keeping curiosity alive between you, continuing to update your love maps, your knowledge of your partner's inner world. Then reaching out with generosity and affection and respect toward your partner moment by moment. I love the concept of the love map, and I went through it myself. Can you all explain a little bit about that so that people understand what the idea is and how to go about it? So imagine this. When people first meet and perhaps on their first few dates, they're asking each other questions. So you're learning a little bit about your partner's internal world in terms of their history, their values, their needs, their feelings, their politics, what's really important to them. And Love Maps is a system in which you are asking big open-ended questions that map out who your partner is deep inside them. One thing that's really important is that over time, of course, people have many experiences that change who they are. And so what's really important is to continue to ask each other these questions that give your partner a chance to really explore themselves better, in fact, as those questions are asked and they're trying to answer them. Are we only talking about marriage? Can we also lump in long-term partnerships? Are we talking only about heterosexual couples? We've studied all types of couples systematically, gay and lesbian couples, and starting looking at couples who are just met and dating one another. What kinds of relationships? And generally, these principles really are true for all kinds of relationships. You need to deal with conflict, which is inevitable, in ways that are constructive and respectful and affectionate and understanding. You need to go deep in understanding where the differences are between you and what they're all about. And you need to really build trust and commitment in a relationship and work on your sort of system of creating meaning in your life as an individual and as a couple, your shared meaning system. We look at how the masters and disasters are different, even as they become parents. How are they different during pregnancy? How are they different in the way they interact with a baby and they become parents together? All of those things that we've studied in our laboratory. I was single for, you know, most of my 20s, hadn't really been in any really serious relationships until now. I have lived in New York and have been enjoying my time, but also have been incredibly career focused. And the people in my circle kind of span that same gamut around my age. We're millennials. I think we're one of the first generations where the women in our generation do have this much bigger push to be career oriented, to go forth in that way. 
perhaps versus the way that our parents were raised or our parents even talked to us about partnership if they did at all. And I have friends who are married and who have children and friends who are married with no children and friends who don't ever want to get married and all of that. But along this spectrum, what are you all learning about us as people and how we can evolve together no matter where we are? I think one of the things that's important is understanding that relationships, first of all, take time. They take time for trust to build, for a person to understand that the other partner is really there for them in all kinds of situations, has their back. And what we're seeing a lot of today that is a bit of a concern is, first of all, that people are doing quick hookups through different websites, moving to sex right away, and then moving on to somebody else. And in that process, they may get to know a bit of each other physically, but they don't emotionally. They don't at a deeper level, typically. You need to give relationships time to unfold and to blossom and to lead wherever they're going to go. People really need to know who they are. And sometimes what happens is that we work so hard going through school, maybe moving into a career, that there is almost no time for reflection. Yet, every single person we know is a philosopher. Everybody has a set of values that they choose to live by, whether those are modeled after the family or they're modeled after the peer group that the people find themselves in. And it takes time to reflect on, okay, who am I? What are my values? What's really important to me, for one thing, in selecting a partner? Do I need to look for somebody who's got money or somebody who's ambitious or somebody who's successful? Or do all those things not matter at all? Does it matter more to me that somebody is going to be a great co-parent or somebody is kind and sensitive, even if they're far less, let's say, financially advantaged than we are or than someone else is? So looking for a partner and then establishing a relationship means going deep, reflecting on who you are, what's most important to you, and then allowing yourself, if you meet somebody who will never perfectly meet what you're looking for, but will partially do so, can you accept that person in the differences they bring to the relationship? The differences in lifestyle preference, the difference in personality. Because as we know, 69% of all problems in relationships are perpetual problems. They never go away. And you have to learn how to talk about those, but you also have to learn how to accept those differences in one another and even treasure them as part of the riches that other partner brings to the relationship. I remember growing up on the Disney movies where every princess finds her prince. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people in my generation, particularly with the way that we were raised, 
I think it goes in the same category of this idea of like, we are all unique. But I also do believe that sometimes we conflate what's a real problem versus what is this sort of fantasized ideal of what we think we're supposed to be experiencing versus what real life looks like and what a real match when you think about a partner looks like. Do you all see that in the Love Lab or elsewhere? I've really seen it clinically. We have lived on a small island called Orcas Island for a long time, and there are lots of people who live there who are artists, who are writers, who are very creative people. And one time, a couple walked into my office wanting help, and they talked about first having met one another. They realized they were soulmates, they were twin flames, etc., And now they'd been living together for a year, and lo and behold, gee, they were having conflict. How do soulmates have conflict? They're not supposed to have conflict. They're supposed to link perfectly together like two pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, right? Wrong. What I had to do is to take hold of their ankles and pull them back down to earth to where they could understand that no We each, even if we share the same culture, same sexual orientation, share even the village that we come from, nonetheless, every family is its own culture. We like to call it the relationship culture or the marriage culture. And so you're bringing in different sets of values, and you're trying to combine all the parts of you into this relationship. Now, needless to say, they're not all going to fit well. In fact, 69% of the problems, as I mentioned earlier, are coming from those big differences between you, right? So what do you have to learn how to do? You have to know how to have a dialogue when those differences create conflict. And that dialogue should not be one that is out of control, full of rage, trying to make the other person more like you. That's one of the big mistakes couples make. One partner really wants the other one to be just like them and have the same values. Well, guess what? That fails miserably. And if it succeeded, you'd be bored out of your mind. Who (laughs) wants to marry yourself? So what's really important is to accept those differences, learn how to talk about them, and then if they produce conflict, to negotiate around the edges of those problems. And what I mean by that is honoring each other's differences, honoring each other's dreams, and looking for what's flexible inside of you and that partner inside of them so that within the flexible areas of your differences, there can be compromise. You don't want to give up what's absolutely crucial to your identity because a compromise will never work. Are you always looking for compromise? No, not always. If there's conflict, sometimes every now and then, you'll have problems that end up breaking you apart. Those are far and few between. The classic one is I want to have a child, my partner doesn't. 
and we both feel strongly about it. There's not going to be a compromise. You're not going to have half a child, right? Yeah. Maybe you'll have a nice dog, but nonetheless, (laughs) that's not going to fulfill (laughs) the need for a child as well. That's one condition in which compromise isn't possible, really. There are others where it may be a trade. You know, in other words, one person may have a dream that the other person really isn't interested in at all. Yet, if there's enough understanding of that partner's dream, then the other person may want to fulfill it, but they may want something very different in return. Now, that's not exactly a compromise. It's a bit of a bartering. It's a trade. So there's all kinds of ways of dialoguing about these big conflicts and arriving at resolutions from different directions. And within a conflict, there can be very small dreams, not dreams for your whole life, but you'd like to have autonomy in certain things or you want to have alone time that you need. So they can be very specific to particular conflicts. One of the things that we always see with two career couples, the struggle is really finding balance, both individual fulfillment within that career, as well as couple fulfillment in the relationship. And when you think about people who are maybe a little further along in their relationship journey, they are married or they have children, where you see things go wrong, is it that we forget to be curious about our partners? Is it that we forget to update the love map, if you will? Because so many of us are taught, I did the thing that I was supposed to do. I got married. Now I have kids and I'm supposed to be happy, but forgetting to do the work within the relationship. One of the ways that things go wrong is that people get so busy and get very centered on their careers, they get very centered on children, their life devolves into this very long to-do list. And as we learned from the Sloan study at UCLA, a lot of dual-career couples just ignore the relationship. They think, I said I love you, and if that changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) But they don't go out on weekly dates. They don't connect with one another on moment-to-moment basis. At night, they found that Partners spend less than 10% of their time in the same room. They talk to each other really about getting the errands done, but they really don't nurture romance and adventure and playfulness between them. They neglect the relationship. And when you do that, it deteriorates. We're taking a quick break. When we get back, you'll hear one of the most impactful ways for two people to reconnect that those in successful relationships do eight out of 10 times, and you might be missing. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. 
Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves, and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. and so. We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Drs. John and Julie Gottman on how impactful turning toward our partners can be. You mentioned bids for connection. Can you share what that is? Yeah. Bids for connection are a way of turning towards your partner, either for interest, just to have your partner interested in something that you're saying or that you're seeing, or it could be expressing a need, whether that's a small need or a much larger need. So we call making bids for connection an opportunity for turning toward one another. And when your partner just calls your name, hey, John, look at that beautiful bird out there. Isn't that gorgeous? Mm. John, that's a bid for connection. I want John to be interested in what I'm seeing and to enjoy it with me. Now, John can respond in three different ways. He can either totally ignore what I said and remain silent. We call that turning away. He can also turn against me by saying, can't you see I'm reading? Stop interrupting me. Give a hostile response. Or he can turn towards me and say, huh, that is beautiful. That's all it takes. And turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. We found in our apartment lab, the love lab, that where we actually had couples stay for 24 hours and we videotaped them except for during their sleep hours, we took their urine samples, we took their blood pressure, we were (laughs) measuring their heart rate, we were looking at their physiology, but we were also hundredth of a second by hundredth of a second analyzing the tapes later of how they interacted, just relaxing together and hanging out. And what we saw is that the couples who were successful years down the road turned towards each other in that 24 hours 86% of the time when their partner made a bid for connection. But the couples who were unsuccessful, who ended up either unhappily together or split up, turned towards each other only 33% of the time. 
So that's a 53% difference in turning toward. That's how important turning toward is. Yet, all it takes is just a little bit of listening and even a one-word answer. doesn't have to take a huge effort. And part of turning toward is also that people are building an emotional bank account in the relationship so that during conflict, if they've turned toward a lot, they have a shared sense of humor. They can be affectionate even when they disagree. They can disagree in a kind of kind, affectionate way. And to be able to laugh at yourself when you disagree with one another, that's a huge asset. And it really comes from turning toward. Is there a spectrum of interest in which we should be aware that we should turn towards? And then is there distraction, which doesn't necessarily matter? It depends on how important, let's say, that TikTok account is to your partner. How important is it for him to be sharing that with you? Because he's so excited about it, it means a lot to him. So buckle down and keep turning towards as much as you can. It's also okay to say, I'm sorry, honey, I just am feeling a little bit tired right now, a little overwhelmed, a little distracted. I can't really give this the attention that I would like to be able to do. So how about if we do this again tomorrow or something like that? I'll give you a classic example. Between John and I, John, as you know, started off life as a mathematician and then moved into psychology later. So John loves to describe math to his wife, who will <laughs> glaze over when it comes to anything beyond, I don't know, maybe advanced algebra or something. And he's talking about linear equation modeling, and I can't even say the words or remember them, let alone understand what he's talking about. Nonetheless, he will start telling me something he discovered, and I'll do my darndest to listen. <laughs> and I'll ask him a zillion questions because I have no idea of what the heck he's talking about. Even the terms don't make any sense to me. So I'll ask him a lot of questions and try and understand. Now, am I going to remember everything he said? Uh-uh. And I can claim senioritis, but I can also claim I have no idea of what he's talking about. But I want to be interested when he's talking about it so I'll try my best to listen and genuinely be interested. It almost sounds like it doesn't even matter if you remember everything or remember all the details, but more the awareness of your partner's excitement level or interest level and being able to get really good at sensing that and then just showing up for the experience. I think about love psychology. I love studying the human experience, and there are many ways I do that. And I can be talking about it in detail and go into a total tailspin about like the Enneagram or something. And I know my boyfriend has no idea what I'm talking about and like doesn't care, but he'll sit there and listen while I leaf to the same Enneagram book, same page I've read eight times and just be like, uh-huh. <laughs> so it almost doesn't matter that like he doesn't care. It matters that he's showing up because he knows how much it means to me. That's exactly right. Got it. When we think about what's possible in masterful long-term partnerships, what have you all seen as possible for people to create in their lives? 
One of the most important things is that you can stay in love. You can actually stay in love for decades. A lot of people say, no, that's just chemistry the first couple of years, but after that, you're not in love in terms of feeling this great attraction to them, just enormously enjoying being with them. Can you still do that after 36, 40, 50 years together? Yes, you can. You can stay in love. So that's one thing that's wonderful to discover. Another thing that we've discovered in our clinical work is that even if you think the relationship is dead, you have so much anger, you have so much resentment, you don't think it can arise again, we know that it can. You can create, let's say, relationship number two if number one is gone. In most cases, it's almost like a phoenix rising from the ashes. People often will carry so much anger and hurt from past terrible injuries, emotional injuries with their partner that they don't know how to process. So one of the things that we do is we teach couples how to process and understand those past regrettable incidents so deeply that they really get what triggered their partner to react the way they did, how their partner perceives something which inevitably is different than how they themselves perceived it. And finally, if apologies are required after understanding the impact of a regrettable incident, really understanding it deeply, then you apologize. You don't do an apology right off the bat. So as those incidents that have hurt are processed, and then people learn different ways of communicating, we've been amazed, and I just had a couple of weeks ago, that had already filed for divorce, were separated from each other for 15 months, and they walked out of what we call marathon therapy, which is intensive five hours a day, three consecutive days, totally in love, totally reconciled, thrilled that they discovered each other again mm -hmm. and wildly in love. Wow. Okay, so the upsides of becoming masters in relationships are we can stay in love for decades. Is it too soon for me to ask you to? Are you still in love? Do you still enormously enjoy your time together? And what relationship number are you on? <laughs> Yeah, I, I Look wanna... at how cute he is. How could I not be in love with this face? Helen Fisher has studied this. She's at Rutgers University, and she found that there is no shelf life to being in love. You can be in love for your whole relationship. It doesn't die after 24 months of being together. I used to make up that I had to be what my therapist would call ready-made, be perfect in order to enter a relationship. And I think that stems back to probably a million childhood things where performance has always been something in my life. So I think it's just translated to this idea of being in partnership. And so I had to work for a year with my therapist to untangle this, like, everything must be perfect in every corner of my life in order to meet someone. 
part of that was conditioning. And I will also say part of it was I had a sense like deep down that my life was going to take a new direction. It was prior to me being in the role I'm in today. I just had a sense that whoever I was going to meet was going to come after that shift for some reason. But the logic part of me was like, no, I need to fix this and this. I need to lower my anxiety. I need to be living in this apartment. I need to be all these things. It was such a big awakening when a close friend of mine said, but you can grow in partnership. <laughs> I was like, no, and I'm, I'm obsessed with self-development and growth. And I was like, no, I got to do this alone. What do you all say to that perspective? The perspective that you used to have, I think, Leah, is the norm. That is so normal, so common that people feel they have to be perfect. They have to have everything just perfectly laid out inside themselves. I think one of the little sentences that summarizes that is, you can't love somebody else until you love yourself. Well, forget it. If that were true, this wouldn't be here. You know, this husband, I mean, my God, I didn't love myself when I met him. I hardly do now. Little pieces of myself. I like my hair. We're always growing. That's what life is all about. We're never finished growing. When you're finished growing, it's time to die. So in relationship, part of the beauty of honoring each other's dreams is really helping your partner to grow into the best they can be in whatever way they want to be themselves. That's part of the nurturing of your partner. Yeah, that's such a beautiful way to put it. So what relationship number are you all on at this point? How many times have we redefined us? Hmm. I don't know. The changes are so subtle over time. The first one was when I was working separately from you for about eight years and just had my private practice. And I didn't see couples. I only saw individuals. And then number two started when we were sitting in a canoe out in the ocean, and John was telling me about all of his research findings. I said to him, we've got to take it out of the research journals and into the world, because people desperately need this. Right. And you completely agreed, mm-hmm. and it's been cruising ever since. And maybe, maybe a little bit. We're slipping into number three, which is we just became new grandparents a year ago, and we're ecstatic. We're in love with a (laughs) one-year-old little guy. Recreating a multi-generational family is so fulfilling and gratifying. And getting to see each other as grandparents is a whole new phase that we're just loving. That's number three. Yep. Would you agree? Yep, I would. Thank you for being so open to just sharing that piece of you. And this is part of the reason I love the work that I'm doing is there's so much information that we don't get access to because it feels like we can't easily apply it or not even easily, but simply apply it to our lives today. And I think, thank God for that canoe trip. And the reason I say that is because we all now get access to information that is so meaningful because we all know home life has such an impact on everything else. The people that we spend most of our time with impact us. 
much of the reason we're alive is to create meaningful and quality relationships. So I so thank you both for what you've done and what you continue to do. And before we close, though, I'd love to ask you to complete these three statements. And John, I'll have you do the first one, and then Julia, I'll have you do the second, and then I'll have you both do the third. So the first statement is for John, which is better humans are. Better humans are aware of their own humility. Julie, better work is? Better work is work that gives your life deep purpose and meaning. Amen to that. All right. And then the last one is a better world has, and John, I'll have you go first. A better world has people who emphasize their own altruism over their own selfishness. A better world contains people who respect each other across cultural boundaries, national boundaries, religious boundaries, sexual boundaries, gender-related boundaries, any significant differences, there is respect. I love that. Thank you so much, both of you, for being here and joining me. This was my page is full. My cup is full. Thank you. (laughs) Ours is too. Thank you, Leah. That was Drs. John and Julie Gottman, world-renowned relationship researchers and authors. And getting to have them together was chef's kiss. I love these kinds of conversations because the quality of our relationships is really the key to living well. And speaking of, one big thing before we go. No matter where you feel you fall on the relationship spectrum, master to disaster, there's always space to get curious and learn something new, to approach it as if it's a new day and a new experience. It can be so easy to take the people closest to us for granted, assuming they'll always be around. So if you find yourself acting in line with that assumption, why not get curious? Turn toward them the next time they try to connect. Decide you're going to learn something new about them. And by the way, if you're currently unattached, that's totally cool too. You can use this conversation to feel better prepared for your next partnership, or just use some of this info with your friends. You can find a ton more of the Gottman's resources on their website, which we'll put in the show notes. If this conversation made you want to do even better in your relationship, share it with someone else who might want the same or just loves learning about this stuff like I do and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, write a one-sentence review telling me what you loved about this episode. I think my favorite was that most disasters can actually become masters. That gave me some hope for all of us who might be wanting to thrive in our long-term partnerships. And as always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Franz Bowen, Alexis Ramdow, and Rafa Fariha. Asafki Drone makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn. And I'm Leah Smart. 
Thanks for coming on the journey with me, and I'll see you next week.